Good morning, everyone. Can can folks hear me okay? Okay, great. It's so lovely to see everyone from all over the world and Vermont and the UK. So hello to our friends also in Switzerland and Alpine and Hawaii and Chicago and St. Augustine, Florida. <clears throat> so this morning, I'm going to talk about, talk for about half an hour, and then if our monitor could bring us to breakout groups for about 10 minutes, and then we'll reconvene for another five. So this morning, I wanted to talk about uh, time. <clears throat> and so I started preparing for this talk quite a quite a long time ago because I read that Dogen, the founder of our lineage, at the time uh, around when he was 40 years old is when he wrote his famous section in the Shobo Genzo called Uji. And he was 40 years old. So I figured if he could write it at 40, it was due time that I, <laughs> I at least try to read it at 41. And so that work is, uh, Uji is translated usually as time being. So the concept of time or time seemed very important to Dogen in terms of practice, in terms of Zen practice. And that in itself, I think, is a really good question. Namely, not just what time is, but why time is important to our real life lived Zen practice. More specifically, why is time important to understand in terms of our Zen practice? <clears throat> uh, and just as a note to all of you, this uh, talk as well as other talks at Apamada are recorded and so and posted on YouTube. So there's no reason to record them yourselves. You'll be able to watch this whole thing if you want to on YouTube. So anyway,
so it, it, I became uh, I became somewhat obsessed with trying to figure out time. <laughs> uh, but in the process, I think something interesting happened, which is instead of understanding time, which I still don't understand. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, I did gain some insights into the question of what it means to understand something or even like what it is that we're trying to do when we try to understand something. In other words, how does understanding itself work? And Dogen talked about this also. He actually said explicitly that if we do not ask the right questions about the nature of our experience, we cannot actualize realization. So I'll say that again, because he was quite specific. If we do not ask the right questions about the nature of our experience, we cannot actualize realization. So slightly rephrased, I think of this as the, 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 I, it seems like the, net, the right question is to ask, what is a right question? <laughs> As opposed to say a wrong question. <clears throat> and furthermore, why is this so important? And I think in, in simple terms, I think in everyday terms, uh, the way I understand this injunction is that as beings with limited minds, at the very least, we have to begin our practice trying to understand and accept the fact that we have our own biases and that meaning we have our own ways of seeing things. And that unless we understand that we have our own way of seeing things and that out of that way of seeing things, we have a preference to continue seeing things that way. Then we won't realize that anything new that comes to us, we're going to filter it out. In the world of uh, cognitive behavior, uh, that's called confirmation bias. So our job is to simply acknowledge that we have all of these biases. And Dogen said, listen to the teacher's words without matching them with your previous views. which is a really interesting uh, task. 
Dogen specifically also wrote the Shobo Genzo, most of his writings, in a very poetic language, using very poetic language, which by its nature is often very hard to understand. When I teach poetry, it's, it's, it's a very interesting concept because students of poetry often think that because something is hard to understand that the poet must be cruel. That the intention of the poet, because he or she writes in a way that's hard to understand, is just trying to be mean and is trying to hide the hidden meaning, so to speak, which is sort of nonsensical, right? <laughs> Very few people write to try to, to hide what they're saying. Most people write to try to communicate. So the, it, it's an interesting question for us. Why would a Zen master write poetically when trying to express something like his understanding of time? And I think the reason is it, it's this very, um, it's this nature of that there's something about poetry that makes it harder for us to understand and to match with what we already know of the world. So it kind of jars us a little bit into the space of, okay, uh, I have to approach this in a new way because the way that I'm familiar with isn't making sense. It's not going to help me with this new thing. But here's the, here's the uh, slightly counter point to all this. Um, we have our base preconceptions. This is all of us. We have these these filters that we we take with us no matter what but we have to understand that these filters we have on they shape us more than we shape them in other words understanding shapes us more than we shape our new attempted way of understanding. Understanding always happens in the context and is always in relationship to other things. So far more than we produce understanding, we are immersed in it. It is our background of intelligibility. This is different from the romantic view of Zen in a way that we could somehow in this radical way leave behind everything we know and just enter the space of truth <laughs> that's pure and separate from what we already know. So to make this point explicit, 
Dale Wright writes about this in his book about in the chapter about understanding he writes to understand something new or foreign like time or like a Buddhist concept is not to set one's own background of understanding aside in order to grasp the concept on its own terms. It is to draw upon this background contextuality as a way to make sense of the new concept. Without preconceptions, we cannot understand at all. So we have to know where we're coming from. If we want to understand time, for example, we have to first start with how is it that we ourselves now think of time? And the metaphor that I think is really useful uh, to, to get a stronger grasp on this is if you are interested in travel and you want to go to a foreign country to really get something out of it, not just as a shallow passive tourist, the first thing you ought to do is not read a whole bunch of books about the foreign place you're going to, let's say Japan. The first thing you actually need to do is read a whole lot of history about the United States. Because only when you really understand your own view about what the United States is, its values, what it considers right and wrong and how people should be, only then will you have a greater appreciation of what's happening over there in Japan. And the second piece of that is you have to then hold your own understanding of your own culture and values really lightly. So that whatever it is you see in Japan has a way of making it in. Has a way of dancing with your own understanding of the United States, for example. And so to get back to time. I want to give you all about two or three minutes right now two on a piece of paper or uh, just in your minds, consider what you think time is. And consider also what it means as a kind of corollary to this, what does it mean for time to flow? So this is me checking in with you to gauge your own already pre-existing pre biases about time.
Chris, could you please state the assignment again? Sure. The assignment is to take a few minutes right now and consider how it is that you view time. If you had to explain the concept of time to an alien from the human view, from your view, what would you say it is? And, uh, and a secondary piece of this is what does it mean from your view that time flows? Okay, so we have uh, some measure of your own understanding. <clears throat> and now what I'd like to share with you is I didn't really know how else to do this, <laughs> truthfully, because uh, <laughs> my intention was to now explain the real concept of time to you. And uh, in 18 minutes left, I'm not sure <laughs> I'll be able to do that. Not least because I don't even understand it myself. But what I will try to do is that uh, what I did in preparation was uh, I read 11 books on physics. 
and then I took some of these points about time that I felt were the most uh, jarring or that caused the most disequilibrium in me. And I tried to translate them in as simple a phrase as I could, or concept as I could, and I'll try to share a bunch of those with you. But, he, but this is more of an interactive talk. So I want you to know that you're not just going to now sit there and nod. <laughs> what I want you to do, or what I'm inviting you all to do, has to do with this question of understanding. So let's presuppose that all these things I'm about to tell you, you won't understand. But notice instead, pay attention instead to what happens inside you, in your body. When I read one of these explanations of what time is, that does something inside you that you quite don't quite know what to do with. What is it that you immediately start doing? So it's an open, it's an invitation to openly examine how these pebbles that I'm throwing in with regard to time, how they interact with the lake of your pre-existing understanding. So one concept is the notion that nothing in physical reality leaps from one location in space to another without something transporting it. If we see a child playing on a beach, it is only because between him and ourselves, there is this lake of vibrating lines that transport his image to us. In physics, this is the concept of fields. We are immersed in fields. Whereas often we experience reality as individual separate atoms. But reality is actually entirely fluid. Consider looking at a grandfather clock with a pendulum that swings back and forth like this. If you played a video of that pendulum clock forward, and if you played it in reverse, would you know which one is forward and which one is reverse? The correct answer to that question is you wouldn't know because it would look exactly the same, whether you played it forward or in reverse. But consider now a cup of coffee before you add milk. If you poured in the milk into the coffee and stirred it up and played the video forward and reverse, would you be able to tell 
which direction is which. And the correct answer is you would. And there's a reason, so there's a reason why this happens. The world isn't just a network of colliding atoms. It is also a network of correlation between sets of atoms. A network of real reciprocal information between physical systems. If you could, in that coffee, know exactly where each atom of the coffee was, precisely, if you could zoom in close up close, then you would be able to tell forwards from back. But instead, as humans, we can't get that close. So we begin to generalize we begin to, in our minds, create abstractions. And it is out of this generalization that information is lost. And because information is lost, we now, we now make certain assumptions And out of these assumptions, we lose the actual precision of where the actual atoms are. So a kind of ignorance shows up in our view. And that ignorance is what shifts forward from back. So I'll say this a slightly different way. Why does hot tea cool down? Because the number of possible states of the molecules in hot tea and cold air is smaller than the number of cool tea and slightly warmer air. The combined states state evolves from a situation where there are fewer possible states to a situation where there are more possible states. The tea can't warm itself up because information cannot increase by itself. That's all fine and good. But here's really the point. That time fundamentally does not play a role at the elementary level. It comes from averages of many microscopic variables. It is always heat and only heat that distinguishes the past and the future. So a slightly different way of saying this is that as we live and grow old, we are producing heat.
if this were not the case, if we were just an isolated atom, an isolated atom by itself, the concept of hot and cold does not exist. You can't compare it to anything else. So you don't know if it's speeding up or slowing down, which is how we kind of translate heat. So by virtue of being alive in this conglomerate of trillions or quazillions of atoms, we are taking averages. And by taking averages, we create the concept of heat. And heat is what creates this notion of past and present. We know which way heat flows, so we could trace it. So here's one definition of time. Time is an, is an effect of our overlooking the physical micro state of things. Time is information we do not have. Time is our ignorance. I like, as I just read that, the, the equation that time is ignorance kind of made me feel good because I thought, well, I'm plenty ignorant, which means I must have a lot of time. <clears throat> Here's a, a slightly different facet of this notion of time. Consider that it makes no sense to say of an event that happened on Mars that it is taking place just now because the concept of just now does not exist. In other words, when, when you did this exercise at the very beginning, I don't know how many of you imagine that the universe has one giant clock. And no matter where you go in the universe, if you looked at the giant clock, it will always say the same, it would always show the same time whether you were in Africa or Asia, or whether you were on Earth or Mars or a different solar system, if you could just look at this one clock, you would all agree, oh yes, it's noon. I think that's a fairly common conceptual understanding we have. We know now that is not the case. There is no such thing as a just now. Absolute simultaneity does not exist. There is no collection of events in the universe that exist now.
the collection of all the events in the universe cannot be described as a succession of nows, of presence, one following the other. The structure of time has a much more complex organization. And that's because space does not exist independently from time. The concept of present is exactly like the illusion of Earth being flat. From a certain perspective, that's what it looks like, right? But there is this intermediate zone between the past and the present that we call now that is actually much wider or bigger than we think of it. The now on Mars, in other words, actually lasts, the now that we experience here on Earth as now actually lasts for something like 15 minutes on Mars and is equally the present. <laughs> so just like if you imagine yourself floating in deep space with no um, geographical markers, what would happen to your concept of up and down? It would, they would become more or less meaningless. In order for up to exist, you need to have something to compare it next to. Likewise, there isn't a before and after between two events in the universe. Just like there is no true up and down, there is no true before and after. Space-time, space and time are actually one thing Uncle Albert discovered. And this space-time thing is more like a loaf of bread that is entirely whole. And it's not just a series of slices moving from one slice to another. It's already this whole loaf of space-time. <clears throat> and it's somewhat curious because uh, it's, well, here's another interesting thing for you to consider that light, the field that allow that connects everything and allows us to quote unquote, see the electromagnetic field that our eyes interpret as seeing light itself does not experience time. Consider what that means to you. What happens when you hear inside yourself 
that light does not experience time. I was going to take us on a side journey into quantum physics <laughs> and general relativity, but it seems that's a little ridiculous given, uh, <laughs> I, I was overly ambitious, I think. So I will skip the general relativity stuff. <clears throat> and just drop one more of these concepts and to, to check in to give you another opportunity to see how it lands for you when you hear that in order to, for an electron to move from point A to point B, it actually literally behaves as though it's passing through all possible trajectories. In other words, it does not take a single line, a single road to get from point A to point B. It looks that way to us, but it actually goes everywhere, everywhere in the entire galaxy. <laughs> and we only end up seeing it in one place. So what happens to your concept of understanding when you think of that? When an electron goes through two open slits in front and you see it ending up behind one of them on the board, but know based on our experiments that it actually went through both slits at the same time. What does it mean to understand that? When I, when I am met with this, uh, what feels to me impenetrable mystery beyond my cognitive capacities, my go-to approach is to read more. <laughs> Hence the 11 books of physics to try. I figured, okay, the first one didn't help much, so I'll read the second and then the second one led to the third and the third to the fourth and here we go at number 11. But maybe that's pointing, you know, I'm not saying that that's wrong necessarily, but unless it's the 12th book that has all the answers, then there's something to be said for, I think, pausing and reflecting. What is it that I'm actually trying to do here? What is it that you and your space of understanding are really trying to do? And I want to return us to Dogen and this uh, question of time and ignorance. Fundamentally, if you follow Buddha's core teachings, all of the mess that we're in or all of the mess that is humanity and life, it stems from impermanence. That everything 
is impermanent and therefore changes. And change is how we mark time. We think impermanence means that things last and then pass away. But things arise and pass away at the same time. That's a much closer understanding of reality. We are ignorant of this fact. And because we are ignorant of this, the way impermanence actually works is why we suffer or suffer more than we need to. And so the question I want you guys to talk about in your breakout groups is it's kind of twofold, but one is what causes this, this fundamental state of our ignorance? And two, what would happen if you stopped being afraid of not knowing something? What would happen if you stopped being afraid of not knowing? That you, in other words, understood that you don't understand and that you never will understand. What would happen to you? I'll end by reading the very beginning of Dogen's actual writing in, uh, in his text Uji, translated as Time Being. This is, these are Dogen's explicit words on the nature of time. He wrote, The 16-foot golden Buddha body is time. Because it is time, it has time's glorious golden radiance. You must learn to see this glorious radiance in the 12 hours of your day. The demonic asura with three heads and eight arms is time. Because it is time, it can be in no way different from the 12 hours of your day. Although you never measure the length or brevity of the 12 hours, their swiftness or slowness, you still call them the 12 hours. As evidence of their going and coming is obvious, you do not, you do not come to doubt them. But even though you do not have doubts about them, that is not to say you know them. Since a sentient being's doubting of the many and various things unknown to him are naturally vague and indefinite, the course his doubting takes will probably not bring them to coincide with this person doubt. Nonetheless, the doubts themselves are after all, none other than time.
So Anne, if you could whisk us away into breakout groups, speak amongst yourselves for 10 minutes, and then Anne, if you could whisk us back and see for us to have a chance to integrate. Back Hi. <laughs> so the query I left you with was what would happen if you stopped being afraid of not knowing? Well, we would entertain, we would be more open to new ideas. Mm. We wouldn't be so closed off trying to protect the world as we believe it to be. And it's kind of the root of defensiveness, isn't it? That if we let go of the need to know, then the walls come down and something else opens up and we're free to take in something completely new or in a completely different way that we'd never taken it in before. Joel has his hand up, Chris. I would like to say um, that I, it, it strikes me that it, it would have, at least on me, it would have the opposite effect. If I were afraid, if I yes. were not afraid of not knowing, I would uh, descend into complete apathy. Yes. And uh, not, you know, not knowing wouldn't matter. Uh, so I would not be, it would not make me open to more ideas. Uh, it is the, you know, the goad of my not knowing that keeps me curious. Um, is, is the way I'm thinking of it right now. What do you think, Chris? I try not to think <laughs> anymore. Claudine? <laughs> well, I... I think that if I was not afraid, if I wouldn't be afraid of not knowing, I would relax and dwell in the present moment. And it would be a, a deep relaxation. And I sort of, our poem from yesterday, Kim and Barbara, uh, yesterday in Woman in Zen, where she, she the, the nun said, walk calmly in, in the, in, in the flood, very calm. And I, I thought something common with that, just a deep calm. Mm. So I was thinking about how I so self-identify as somebody who knows that how much that's a part of my story of who I am and the kind of person I am is a smart person, a person who knows. And if suddenly that became unimportant, I would have to rearrange myself. Eric? I like to think of uh, not uh, beyond knowing better way to think about this uh, so if you, because I think you get caught up 
you say not knowing, then you, you think of uh, like Joel was referring to. But, but if you're like, it's beyond knowing, then you sort of have a, uh, maybe an idea that you know, you're just going to do your practice and never, you realize you're never going to really figure out what, you know, what's happening out there, but it's all good. And that, and that attitude has worked for me. So that's all I can say. Joan? Well, Bill has been wanting to say something. Oh, I Bill. But he's yeah, let yeah, him start yeah. out, yeah. The, the idea of uh, uh, not being afraid of not knowing, we exercise that idea all the time. All the time there's information in, life in front of us and we decide whether we want to know something about it or not. And so an often case we just say, I don't need to know anything about that and we throw it on the trash heap. <laughs> okay. What I want to say, as a creative person, my mind wanders and I go in a different direction. I went immediately to some things you said about walking into a room, uh, leaving behind all of the preconceptions. And we've been talking about Black Lives Matter recently and reading the book, uh, White Fragility, which has made me aware that I don't understand other people, people of different races, and how I can change that by paying attention and not and letting go of my preconceptions by uh, in sensitizing myself through different things. So I went in that direction. But I also enjoyed seeing how much you really uh, thrive on getting information. Chris, that's really amazing to see. So that's where I went. Thank you, Joan. Mm -hmm. Cersei, did you have your hand raised? I did. Um, I was going to I was relating to what Anne said about um, feeling like I had to know, you know, that that was part of my job, especially as a professor, I was supposed to have the answers and that over the course of my life, I've been, um, I think kind of progressively giving that up and um, feeling a sense of not apathy, but liberation in that. And I think it's a, there's a kind of hubris that says, I, I do know, or that I have the answers. There's some things I know, but what it is is this immense curiosity about what it is that I don't know or can't know. And that there's um, like an immense sense of kind of relief and possibility in that. And but, like, I don't have to know anymore. I can just kind of um, be. And there's something really, really lovely about just being uh, without having the mind trying to uh, make sense of it, whatever it is. Thank you. I noticed via my Zoom gallery cam that two of my Zen students are here and <clears throat> They can, I think we could, uh, we, we could double check with instant feedback uh, what, what happens when their professor shows up 
not knowing anything. <laughs> what, <laughs> what does class feel like when that's the case? <laughs> Christian? Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Christian. Good to see all of you today. Uh, it's so for me, uh, just given my particular journey, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with not knowing. Um, it's, it's, so I, it took me a while, but I'm okay with it. It's just, as we were talking uh, in our breakout room, you know, it's not only the limitations of our, of our, of, of how we are as human beings, but even that we're not going to get that far. Uh, but it's okay. I, I think of it kind of like a, a buffet, if you will. There's no way I want to be able to eat everything at the buffet. Uh, but, but what I do get to eat, uh, I, I really enjoy. And I think that uh, for me is, 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 is comforting at least. Though I, to, be, to be fair, it's, I'm also kind of sad that uh, I won't get to know everything as silly as that sounds. <laughs> Bill? I want to say something about uh, constructs. Time is a construct. And when we walk into the, 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 the room of our mind, there are thousands of constructs hanging on the wall. And when we, uh, when we want to do something, we look around for one that's useful and then we use it for a while on something, then put it back and move on to the next one. Maria? I, I was just thinking about intimacy and not knowing. I mean, because whenever we meet people or come into contact with people, everything we think we know, all our preconceptions, all our history, our conditions, everything comes forward with us. And if we can be, not be afraid to kind of let go of all of that, then that barrier that we have between each other, the distance would would go away because we'd be in a position where we could really just hear and see the person as they are and as they're presenting to us rather than all the imaginings and the things that we do to try and know in that meeting or to try and be prepared and ready to meet. If we could be in a state of not knowing to meet, what a wonderful place that would be and more intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. Mm. So I noticed that we're at the end of our time for this morning's talk. I just want to leave you with something I already read earlier and see whether it shifted, whether this line shifted at all for you. Recall that Dogen was trying to communicate something true and so when you hear this see what happens when you really take it sincerely when he wrote doubts themselves are after all none other than time Thank you so much for listening to the talk. And now we are going to go toward the service portion to conclude our morning. <laughs>